0: Logistically, it's going to be a challenge for lots of states to meet the high demand for absentee voting that's likely to occur this year uh, because of the pandemic. And so it's both a
1: logistical issue and a a legal issue. If you're in a state that allows you to request a ballot for any reason, I would say go ahead and request the ballot for November. Do it now. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in
2: the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have a book out titled The Sled and How to Get Sued. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Blue J Legal. Blue J Legal's AI-powered foresight platforms accurately predict court outcomes and accelerate case research by using factors instead of keywords. You can learn more at bluejaylegal.com. That's Blue, the letter J, legal.com. bluejaylegal.com. On April 6, 2020, Election Eve in Wisconsin, the Supreme Court here in the United States ruled in favor of the Republican National Committee and Wisconsin Republicans refusing to extend the deadline for absentee ballots in Wisconsin in the middle of the current pandemic, with thousands of voters no longer able to vote by mail. This decision led to long lines at understaffed voting locations and a reduced number of voting locations across Wisconsin as voters in masks attempted to maintain safe distances from each other. We're currently living in uncertain times where a public health crisis has taken center stage, and our voting process, as seen as Wisconsin, is going to be tested and strained. As we approach a major nationwide election this November, what kind of obstacles can voters expect to face on Election Day? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss voting during the pandemic. We'll take a look at SCOTUS's Wisconsin primary decision, vote by mail, and the impact the pandemic will have on the upcoming election. And to do that, we've got two great guests for you today. Our first guest is Edward Foley. He holds the Eversold Chair in Constitutional Law at Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law, where he also directs its election law program. His book, Presidential Elections, and Majority of Rule, available from Oxford University Press this year, excavates the long-forgotten philosophical premises of how the Electoral College is supposed to work as it's been revised by the 12th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Well, welcome to the show, Ned.
0: Good to be with you, Craig. Thanks.
2: And next up, we have Charles Stewart III. He is the Kenan Sahin Distinguished Professor of Political Science at MIT, where he has taught since 1985. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. His research and teaching areas include congressional politics, elections, and American political development. Charles is currently the director of the Caltech-MIT Voting Technology Project, a leading research effort that applies scientific analysis to questions about election technology, election administration, and election reform. Welcome to the show, Charles. Glad to be here. Well, Ned, I'd like to turn to you first and kind of have you, and have you give us a, a framework of what voting rights are in the Constitution, how it's going to be handled in the pan- pandemic, and what happened in this uh, United States Supreme Court decision that uh, has generated so much interest.
0: Sure. Um, Well, Wisconsin is a warning sign for November and uh, for the country. Uh, You know, we have a constitutional commitment to one person, one vote, you know, full participation for all citizens, all eligible voters. And that was maybe going to be a challenge this year anyway. But the virus is certainly making it an extra challenge. I mean, I do think the good news is we still have time between now and November. And so we can get this right. We can run a free and fair election where voters do have full opportunity to participate. And we can be also adequately attentive to any integrity or security concerns. But Wisconsin showed us the potential of what can go wrong and what can happen if there isn't adequate preparation or not enough time is available. And so let's learn the lessons because we can learn some important lessons from what
2: happened. Charles, let's talk about the technology. I mean, there's been some rumor that the United States Supreme Court or the Wisconsin Supreme Court met virtually over the internet in order to reach these decisions. Right. I mean, indeed, yes. It doesn't have great optics, does it?
1: (laughs) No, it doesn't. Nor does a leader of the Wisconsin legislature, fully dressed out in um, protective gear, you know suggesting that everything is perfectly fine in Wisconsin. So I mean the optics all around um, were not particularly good before, during and somewhat after um the primary.
2: Are we going to be set up to handle a technological vote of any kind?
1: Um a technology um technological vote I don't think so. I mean I, I think that one of the one of the things I think that we need to make clear in this coming election is that there are a number of things we need to be doing, both to extend voting by mail and to make it safe to vote in person. But I think that the idea that we're going to be voting remotely on the internet, through the apps, things like that in large numbers, that's where we don't want to go for this election.
2: Now, let's talk about this 5-4 uh, ruling from the United States Supreme Court and the kind of stinging dissent that uh, Justice Ginsburg wrote. She pointed out that people will get their ballots, their absentee ballots, after the postmark deadline.
0: Right. The 5-4 nature of the Supreme Court decision is part of the bad optics because it was 5 you know, Republican appointees on one side supporting the Republican National Committee's position, and it was four Democratic appointees on the other side supporting the, the Democratic National Committee. That, again, not blaming anybody for that. It's just an unfortunate situation that a election case of this nature ends up split in that apparently partisan way. It would be much better if we could get nine-zero decisions out of the Supreme Court. Maybe that's unduly idealistic. But these 5-4 splits in election cases are are hard to handle from the public perspective of thinking that the system is neutral and impartial and a a referee that's fair to both sides. So going to the issue of the absentee votes um, and the disenfranchisement, Justice Ginsburg was absolutely right. You had voters here who did nothing wrong. They were eligible voters. They had requested their ballots on time but the government had failed to send them to the voters with enough time for the voters to get them back by their deadline, which was election day under the statute. So there was a serious problem of disenfranchisement at the government's hands that needed to be remedied. Otherwise you were risking commitment, you know, the agreement and fulfillment of the constitutional principle of one person, one vote, which was very much in play. On the other hand, The majority opinion in the Supreme Court had a valid concern. The district court was well-intentioned in its remedy and it thought it needed its particular remedy to protect against disenfranchisement. But part of its remedy was in effect to extend election day, not just for when the ballots could be cast and mailed, but the district court said it would be okay to cast absentee ballots up to six days after the polls had closed or after the election was supposed to be over. And that is uh, something to be worried about. I mean, just think about the November election, We, which is supposed to be November 3rd. We really don't want a set of voters to be able to vote on November 6th, 7th, or 8th. So there were two competing principles at stake. The majority was more concerned with one, and the dissent was more concerned with another. And uh, you'd like there to be some common ground to honor both principles. There may be a way to find one for November, but they couldn't find one in time for the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in Wisconsin.
2: Charles, did the disenfranchised voters have any remedies? Well, um, really not.
1: And the, I mean, the voters were talking, well, there actually was one remedy, which was to show up on election day and vote. Um, Now, if you were needing to vote or wanting to vote because of your consider your concern about catching something or giving it to somebody else then it's not a particularly savory remedy but that really was um, the way to what you had to do you know wisconsin for a variety for whatever reason made a policy choice to not allow ballots to arrive after election day so it really does kind of put the onus on the voter to get the request in well before Election Day and then hope the ballot gets back. But if it doesn't get back and you're not notified about it, then um, you're kind of stuck.
0: Can I just jump in with one more thought? And I'd be curious as to Charles's idea on this, because this was not something that I thought about ahead of time. But as I was you know, concerned about the disenfranchisement and you know worried about those voters, it occurred to me that there might be a solution to think about for November, too late now. And that is, there there is a provision in federal law that's only available for military and overseas voters. And it's called the Federal Write-In Absentee Ballot. And it's designed to meet essentially the same kind of problem that occurred in Wisconsin um, that's happened in the past, overseas, you know, soldiers and sailors will request an absentee ballot from their state government. They'll do that in time, they're eligible voters, they'll do everything right, but because mails are slow overseas and sometimes states are late in printing their absentee ballots and whatnot, they fail to get the absentee ballot to the service people overseas. And so Congress said, we can't disenfranchise, you know, people who are, you know, uh, protecting us. So Congress created an emergency backup ballot that if the official state ballot doesn't arrive you know, and it's available, it's called this federal write in absentee ballot. It's generic. It applies to any state or any election. And that is a way to avoid the kind of disenfranchisement that Justice Ginsburg was worried about, because if the if the military ballot, military voters ballot doesn't arrive, they've got this substitute. Now, they have to cast it before Election Day, but it can arrive afterwards, and as long as it's cast before Election Day, Congress requires the states to count it in a federal election. Now, again, nothing like this existed in statutory law in Wisconsin, or federal law for that matter, for the average voter in Wisconsin who didn't want to go to the polls the way Charles was suggesting because they were afraid of their health. But it might have been a better remedy for the district judge if it said instead of voting a ballot five or six days later, let's download that available federal write-in absentee ballot and use it kind of for a different purpose or for this pandemic-related purpose, or let's invent a substitute emergency absentee ballot. Because I think that remedy would have satisfied Justice Ginsburg, no disenfranchisement. It also should have and would have, I think, satisfied the majority because no extension of the time to vote after election day. So there might have been a compromise, it just things happen too quickly for anybody
1: to see it.
2: What is the problem, Charles, with extending the deadline to vote? Well.
1: I mean, there there's two ways of extending the deadline to vote. I mean the, the I mean one is which was suggested in, in Ned's description that we have a tradition in this country of an election day, and once the election day has occurred, then, you know, hands off the, the pencils and, and you're done. I mean there's I mean there's a there's a practical concern, which is that, that you can start leaking out I mean that the results can start leaking out. And while the folks in Wisconsin were very good in holding on to all the information, including some information that they probably could have released, like turnout information. They were very good in holding on to it. And states around the country have been very good in holding on to information that they have, say, during, during the early voting period. And so so that's good. But one could imagine in another state or in another time, or you know, maybe even this time, You know, folks leaking out the results and if you're leaking out the results during the counting and then give people the opportunity to come in with your forces and to and to load more ballots into the process. I mean, that almost sounds like the definition of ballot box stuffing, which I think there's a bipartisan aversion to. Um, a consensus on that one, and so, I mean, I, I agree with Ned. I mean, and, and Ned has the legal principles. I mean, I'm thinking about kind of the history of policy in the United States. I mean, I think it's widely understood that once the election is over, all the pins are down, no more voting, and anything that looks like adding, you know, new thumbs to the scales, whatever metaphor you want to use, after you have a, after have, you have an inkling of the outcome, is seen as being just a fundamentally illegitimate type of action
2: in an election. Well, gentlemen, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Predict legal outcomes with Blue Jay Legal's Foresight platforms. Using AI to analyze thousands of cases and administrative rulings, Blue Jay Legal can predict with 90% accuracy on average how a judge would likely rule in your case. Plus, you can research by factors and outcomes to find the relevant cases in seconds. Stay ahead of the curve and learn more at BlueJLegal.com. That's Blue, the letter J, legal.com. Legal.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. And with us today is Ned Foley, the Director of Election Law at Ohio University, Moritz College of Law, and Charles Stewart III, the Director of Caltech MIT's Voting Technology Project. We've been talking about the recent Wisconsin decision from before the United States Supreme Court about Voting deadlines. Who has the authority, Ned, under the Constitution to determine when the election is going to be set and whether it can be continued? Are we going to expect President Trump to take the rein here and say he's got total authority over this one, too?
0: Well, if he says that, he would be wrong. And I think that he would get significant pushback on a bipartisan basis by You know, virtually everybody else in the system secretaries of state at the state level and even both parties in Congress. I think it's pretty clear that Election Day for November for both congressional elections and the presidential that's set by Congress. And so we're going to have an election on November 3rd. That date isn't going to be changed. The question to think about in light of Wisconsin and everything else going on is whether there can be problems that happen you know, that will put pressure on completing the election properly with full enfranchisement, you know, by the time the polls are supposed to close on November 3rd. Unfortunately, there could be a repeat of what happened here. Namely, as as you pointed out, voters who were supposed to get their absentee ballots, they did the right thing, but them not getting them. So they can't cast them because they haven't received them. That could happen in Pennsylvania, in Michigan and other battleground states, states that have the same kind of statutory deadline that Wisconsin has, where they're supposed to be returned by 8 p.m. on Election Day. And yet impossible, physically impossible for voters to do that if they didn't receive the ballot in the first place. And logistically, it's going to be a challenge for lots of states to meet the high demand for absentee voting that's likely to occur this year. Uh, because of the pandemic. And so it's both a list- logistical issue and a, and a legal issue. So we may be facing, again, a situation with what kind of remedy to exist if, if this problem occurs. We hope the problem won't occur and that logistics can avoid disenfranchisement. But if we have the same kind of situation, we're going to have to come up with a new remedy because it, it wasn't remedied in, in Wisconsin.
2: Well, Charles, let's take Ned's point and apply it practically to where we are right now. I mean, I, I get my my ballots by mail because I signed up for it, but for the, our listeners who haven't signed up for uh, absentee balloting and don't let's figure out let's plan ahead for November, what do they need to do now? Well, it really depends
1: on the state that they live in. If you live in California or Arizona, you can you can put your name on a permanent list and you're good to go either for the rest of the year or the rest of your life if you live in one of five states you don't really have to do anything other than to be a registered voter and on the active part of the registry for all the other states and you know that's you know roughly 40 of them you're going to have to take some sort of positive action to request a ballot in most cases you could you could go ahead now and request the ballot for November and so if you're in a state that allows you to Request a ballot for any reason, and I would say go ahead and re- request the ballot for November. Do it now. You can you can certainly do it now.
2: And who do you ask? I mean, that in California, I believe it's called the registrar, right?
1: Right. And again, that really varies um, by state. So, what I'd recommend for people do is to go to their go to their county or municipal election board website. Probably easiest is to go to the state election department website and. Um, find out the information there. Virtually every website I'm aware of has links and information about what to do to apply. Some states have a centralized online application or online request system. You just um, fill it out and and you're on the list. Others will give you the information about how to contact your county or municipal board. Unfortunately, though, it's very state specific. So I would start with the state election authority, the election department, the Secretary of State, even there, there's variability. But start with the State Election Department and find out the information there. But act now.
2: Right. Excellent advice. Well, Ned, let's talk as well about something else that Justice Ginsburg mentioned in her dissent, and that's the future litigation. I mean, she was she took issue with the 11th hour nature of the lawsuit that was filed to, uh, to deal with this. And I think she was taking... Democrats to the tasks there. So what What can we expect for litigation when it comes to the federal election that's coming up?
0: Oh, a lot of it. I mean, uh, you, Mark Elias is one of the leading uh, lawyers on the Democratic Party side, has publicly announced essentially that he plans a series of lawsuits to, from his perspective to try to improve the voting process. He's got litigation already in uh, Arizona and in Michigan. Um, so he's not shy about that. Now, in some respect, it's better to have litigation early than right. You know, if we're talking about November, you know, some of his lawsuits were brought uh, over a year before the November 2020 election. And to the extent that you're going to have to have litigation at all, it's less destabilizing to voters and to administrators as far as possible in advance. So that way you can clear up some of the ambiguities and codes and some of the problems. What is really hard on the system, both the judiciary and everybody else, is the last-minute lawsuits. And there's a principle in law called the Purcell Principle after one of these cases that's designed not to have last-minute litigation that is destabilizing. But as Wisconsin showed, there can be last-minute events in the real world that trigger problems that necessitate litigation that's not the lawyer's fault or the litigant's fault that just have to be re- reacted to. This ha- this happens sometimes on election day with respect to polling places. You know, there's a power outage at a particular school or a flood or something, and people go to court and say, we need to extend the p- voting hours at this one precinct You know, for two hours because in the middle of the day, nobody could vote because of the flood or the power outage or what have you. That kind of lawsuit can't be told you should have brought it two months earlier so the Purcell principle is designed to stop lawsuits that should have been brought well in advance. So I think the way to think about litigation is before, during, during, and after, kind of like what Charles was talking about early in our conversation, there's a period of time well ahead of election day, which is one kind of lawsuit. Then there's lawsuits right in the middle of the voting process, which are kind of the hardest to deal with because they're so fast moving and an emergency. And then a third kind of lawsuit which Wisconsin I think is avoided at least for their statewide election but it's conceivable is after the polls close and it's time to count the votes and you actually litigate the result and say that there's something wrong with the reported tallies you know that was Bush versus Gore in 2000 it was in Minnesota's US Senate race involving Al Franken and Norm Coleman in 2008 yeah. there were lawsuits over the results so that's a third kind of lawsuit that potentially could exist in November if it's very close and disputed.
2: Charles, let's talk for, before we wrap up about voter IDs and voter fraud. What what are the issues that surround those two points?
1: Well, voter ID very quickly. I mean, voter ID has become the favored reform, um, if you will, among Republicans, on um, Republican state legislators who either I mean, some people say it's to make um, elections more difficult for Democrats. Um, my my take is that Republicans, on average, have a different view about access to the polls and 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 the propriety of of requiring people to demonstrate whether they should be allowed to vote. Um, and in any case, um, this has been a favored reform, and and voter IDs have been have been accelerating as a policy across the country, although it's slowed down a little bit in in recent years. Um, And states have settled into kind of equilibrium. Um, Now, uh, supporters of voter ID justify them based on concerns about fraud. And it has to be said uh, immediately that the type of fraud that would be deterred or detected by voter ID, that is voter impersonation fraud, is is homeopathically rare. I mean, it just almost never occurs. Um, do we observe it. And in fact, there's another type of rare voter fraud, which is absentee ballot fraud, but it's slightly more common than impersonation fraud. And, And in any event, you know, the amount of fraud that we discover in either the mail route or by people impersonating other voters is pretty rare. The cases that we see very commonly are almost kind of a garden variety of fraud and people are reluctant to call them fraud sometimes. It will be the, the widow who bl- knows what her recently deceased husband would have done on election day and she votes his ballot. Somebody who believes that they were re-enfranchised when they got out of prison and they weren't. It's things like that which are technically fraud, but when you look behind the intentions are usually either innocent or well-meaning. So, yeah, um, and those sorts of questions that are becoming, I think, are are being renewed because adding more mail ballots does raise the question about, well, where are those ballots coming from? And does having more mail ballots increase the opportunity of bad actors, um, perhaps, to do nefarious things with the ballots?
2: Right. Well, gentlemen, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information, if you would like. So, Ned, we'll turn it over to you to go first.
0: Well, thank you. I think this year, this election is important for so many reasons, but I think it is going to be a test of our capacity to have a successful election. I think we will. I certainly hope we will. But Wisconsin is put us on notice that it's not a guarantee. And it's what we do collectively as a society between now and November that will determine whether we'll be able to say that we did it successfully or not. So let's get to work and uh, let's make sure that we continue our tradition of free and fair elections. And we're committed to that at our Election Law at Moritz program at Ohio State. That's the best place to find us. You can Google us or email me at foley.33 at osu.edu, but it's Election Law at Moritz and uh, on to November.
2: Wonderful, thank you. And Charles?
1: Well, just to follow up on the spirit there, I mean, it, it, as a political scientist, I like to quip that what's bad for the country is good for business, and I think that the chaotic um, election um, and confusing election in Wisconsin will actually be good as a reminder that if the country does, if, if there is not, if there are not bipartisan solutions to the problems facing voting in the current time, then we can have. Bad illegitimate outcomes at the end. It shows the stakes behind taking emergency actions to de-densify in-person polling places and making sure that you know November is as safe and secure as is possible. And so I'm hoping that Wisconsin shows the dangers of partisan leading with partisanship in terms of addressing this emergency and shows that some simple solutions, such as being more generous in allowing for mail ballots and being more generous with some deadlines will both save lives and will encourage um, more people vote, more people to vote. And if people are interested in contacting me, probably the easiest way is through my email at MIT, which is cstuart at mit.edu.
2: And that's S-T-E-W-A-R-T correct. Great. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. And as a wrap, I'd like to thank Ned Foley and Charles Stewart for joining us today. It's a pleasure having you both on the show. For our listeners, if you've liked what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network.
1: Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.